bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The king of the Gentiles exercised lordship over them, and those in authority of, over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you that this morning you come uh, in such a way to meet us here and allow us to understand and experience your love afresh and anew. We ask that your spirit would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Please be seated. You know, um, this past week I've been reflecting on this two-year mark of uh, when we started uh, the pandemic and kind of sheltering in place. And uh, a lot of thoughts uh, are going through my mind. And one of the things I thought about was, boy, as soon as uh, all the shelter in place started to happen, all of the things I used to be able to do to go out and see people um, go out to eat, all that stuff was taken away, right? And you remember this. And one of the things I did, like many of you did, was watch a lot of TV and movies, right? And um, at one juncture of that period, I went back and started watching all of these older Pixar movies, uh, things I enjoy, and try to kind of like mentally rank in my mind the ones that are my favorites. And, you know, there's some that age well better than others. I think we would all agree. And I found myself uh, drawn really to Wreck-It Ralph. Um, it's really become one of my most favorite ones for a lot of reasons because I think there's a really profound message and it has all these little tidbits from my childhood in the 80s with video games. It's really fun. But if you know the story, if you don't, let me just tell you a little bit about it. It's about the lives of all these video game characters Many of them you recognize, and once the arcade is closed, they all kind of come to life and they do their thing a la Toy Story. But the movie opens with Ralph, who is a bad guy in a video game called Wrecked Ralph. And he is at a meeting, a support group for all the bad characters called Bad Anon. <laughs> right? And it's a group for all of these video game villains who feel dissatisfied with their role as bad guys. So they go there to get support from each other. And Ralph is sharing about how he never gets the glory. He's never gotten a medal. Never been recognized. He's been overlooked, unloved, and he just doesn't want to be the bad guy anymore. You know, so the movie's about his journey in search of getting a medal... 
becoming a hero for once and being celebrated. And I think we resonate with this, all of us at some level, this desire to be great, to be seen. And there is nothing wrong with wanting to be great or to be recognized, to do something significant or even meaningful in your life. But we also know there's a desire for greatness, recognition, and power, which is deeply harmful. And when it becomes all about you, it leads to a life of self-centeredness that really is harmful, not only for you, for others as well. And in verse 24 of our passage, you see the disciples are struggling with this. They're arguing which of them will be regarded as the greatest. And we know if you've been reading through the Gospel of Luke, this is not the first time they are arguing about this because they had this exact same argument back in Luke chapter 9. And they all argued about who was the greatest. And back then, here's what Jesus said. For he who is least among you all is the one who is the greatest. He said, the least among you will be the greatest. And in our passage, Jesus says in verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest The youngest, because in that society, the youngest had very little uh, kind of social currency or power or authority. And the leader as one who serves. So he tells them what greatness begins to look like in his kingdom. And it's through serving, putting the needs of others before your own glory. The greatest in Jesus' kingdom are servants who seek the flourishing of others and not for themselves. And this always requires sacrifice because you're becoming the least. You know, in John's gospel of the Last Supper, we see that Jesus demonstrates this by washing the feet of his disciples. And imagine all of these things that the disciples have heard. They have experienced at this meal if Jesus had washed their feet. And unfortunately, all of this has not sunken in for them. And neither has this Passover meal Jesus is hosting for them. And what he has taught them all of this time hasn't really impacted them. Because we know if it did, I don't think they'd be having this dispute immediately after Jesus washed their feet and explained the Passover meal. See, when it comes to following Jesus... Sometimes it's hard for us to take in everything he says and to be able to experience, understand. But Jesus continues to give us things to say, here, here's what you need to know in order to live life in my kingdom in a way that is in tune with who I am and my kingdom purposes. And this morning, I want us to consider how the Lord's Supper, communion, is such a big part of this. We didn't really get to talk that much about it last week, so I want us to spend a little bit of time thinking about the Lord's Supper, thinking about how this is connected to the disciples and their argument with each other. Because in these weeks leading up to Easter, especially to Good Friday and everything else, Jesus is turning up the volume on explaining his purpose for coming and the suffering he's experiencing 
and what he's come here to do. So this morning, the first thing I want us to consider is this. The sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus, which he highlights in the meal. Because verse 15, which I don't have printed for you, begins this way. Jesus telling his disciples, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I have earnestly, I really, really wanted to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So the setting of this meal is the Passover. So we need to think about that for a second. What is the Passover? Let's talk about that. You know, the Passover was this annual meal that commemorated the defining moment in the history of the people of Israel. You know, in the book of Exodus, we read the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt for over 400 years, and they cry out to God. And God hears their cry and raises up a deliverer, Moses, to lead them into freedom. And the Passover is celebrated annually with a meal as a way to remember salvation and liberation that God brought to his people. Now, you have to understand, this meal wasn't just a potluck where you uh, showed up with a a dish, you sat down and had a party, but there was actually a structure to this. So you may have heard the term a seder. Seder just means order, okay? So it's a liturgy that is being presided over the years, uh, over the meal, and the presider would get up and leave this, and it's usually the oldest in the family, uh, the father would get up and leave the meal. It's kind of like Thanksgiving. You expect someone, the carving of the turkey, you know, it's a, it's a symbolism of honor. The guy gets up and he goes through the meal and explains how the various elements on the table symbolize the captivity and deliverance from slavery and usually going through Deuteronomy 26. So the presider would get up and bless a meal, which is usually comprised of the bread, the wine, the lamb, and the bitter herbs. And he would say something to the effect of, this is the bread of our suffering, which our fathers ate in the wilderness. And again, he'd explain the meaning of deliverance through the food on the table. And I want you to understand something. This Passover meal was so different than anything the disciples had experienced before. Because they're shocked, I suppose, when Jesus gets up and he begins to explain the elements and the symbolism of all of these things. And rather than following the traditional Passover Seder, he deviates from it. He talks about it all differently. He says, this is my body. That is, this is the bread of my suffering. This is my blood poured out for you because I'm going to lead you to the final exodus, your deliverance from bondage to sin and death. I'm going to bring you true freedom. The exodus Moses led was just a foreshadowing of what I'm going to accomplish. And Jesus is saying, just as the meal was observed on the night before God redeemed Israel, Tonight, we eat it on the night before God is going to redeem the world from sin and death itself through me. I mean, this is not just salvation from physical slavery like Moses led. This is salvation 
from the thing that binds us down in ways that we don't understand, sin and death. And Jesus says it's going to happen through my suffering, my sacrifice, through which you will be freed. Another way to think about it is all the other Old Testament sacrifices, the exodus itself were just echoes of what Jesus came to do. And Jesus is saying, my death is the climactic event to which the arc of the history of the world is bending towards. God's redemption of mankind and his justice. This never happens at a Seder. You follow the liturgy and Jesus is redefining it. Jesus is giving it new meaning. And he's trying to help people understand, his disciples understand what he's here to do. Now, you, you have to think about, well, what did his sacrifice actually accomplish here? You know, because Jesus didn't pick any old day in the temple when he was teaching to explain all this. But he purposely chooses this occasion, the Passover, to explain the meaning of his death. See? The meaning of his sacrifice. Again, the night before, they are about to leave Egypt God has been looking at this situation, the abuse that Pharaoh has brought upon his people, the Israelites. God hates injustice. He hates abuse. He is against a dehumanization of people who are created in his image. So he says, the way I'm going to do this is I'm going to bring my judgment on Egypt. And for one night, you're going to have a little preview of the last day. Judgment Day. God's justice is going to show up on human evil and it will target the firstborn. And this judgment is going to come down on the land of Egypt. Now, the interesting thing about this is if you go back and read Exodus chapter 11 and 12, he doesn't tell Moses, look, it's just going to come on your oppressors, meaning my judgment isn't just going to be on the Egyptians. And you, my chosen people, Israel, your firstborn is going to be fine. He doesn't say that because God's justice actually is applied to everybody. And what that means is God isn't just judging only Egyptians since they are the oppressors. And since the Israelites are the oppressed, They are somehow guiltless in all this. But it is telling us every human being is under God's judgment because of sin. No one is righteous, not even one, as Romans tells us, and free from God's judgment. We are all guilty. Sin's not just out there, but it's also in here. Therefore, God says, if my judgment comes down for just one night, it doesn't matter if you're Egyptian or Jew, male or female. It doesn't matter if you're religious or not. Everyone is in danger of losing their firstborn. So God says to Moses, the only way to survive is if you kill a lamb and you roast it, you eat it that night, and you take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorframe. And when God's judgment actually comes... Only if you are in a household with this blood on the doorframe, only if you take shelter under that sign, is there any hope for you. Because again, your morality can't save you, your money can't save you, your achievements can't save you. The only way you will be saved 
is if you have faith in a substitute. Because that night in the land of Egypt, there was either a dead firstborn or a dead lamb. It was going to be one or the other. And if you had the blood of the lamb on your doorpost, God's judgment passed over your house and you were saved, saved by your faith in the sacrifice of the lamb. This is why it's called Passover, because God's judgment passed over these houses, you know? And you have to ask the question again, why would the death of a lamb pardon you from the judgment of God? And the answer is, it actually didn't exempt you from justice. Final day of judgment. You know what does? Something more. You know, and this is when Jesus gets up to bless the food and lead the Seder. It was the oddest Passover ever. Because you know why? There's the bread, there's the wine, there's the herbs. But none of the Gospels actually mention there being a lamb actually at the table. And that's an interesting thing because the lamb is central to the Passover meal, but no one's talking about it. None of the Gospels talk about it. There are debates among scholars whether there actually was and it wasn't referred to or not. But the important thing is this. In the way Jesus describes it, it's not central to the meal. Because the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world was actually sitting with them at the table. And Jesus is identifying himself with the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, who says, like a lamb, he was led to the slaughter. And verse 11 of Isaiah 53 says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. You know, Isaiah understood the lamb was just a foreshadowing of what God was going to do. So when Jesus says in Luke 22, verse 19 here, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is saying, I'm the suffering servant Isaiah spoke about. I am the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You know, the blood that was on the doorpost, that was just a foreshadowing of this new covenant, new promise I am making with you that through my blood, through my sacrifice, through my suffering, you will be saved. You will be saved, you know. And this expression of God's sacrifice through his son, Jesus Christ, is an expression of his love for his people that changes the world. And if you think about it, all genuine love, real love is always, always sacrificial. There's no love that really isn't sacrificial, that isn't transformative. Because it's not that hard to love people who are really good to you. It really isn't. You know, those who stroke your ego tell you how wonderful you are and how, you know, they, they meet all your needs. That's not hard to love people like that. It costs you very little. And by the way, if you're smart and you find a unicorn like that, you're going to make sure they stay in your life, right? Hard to come by. But the reality is we're all very hard to love. 
We're all difficult people. We're all sinful people. We're all people who are out for ourselves and we're more like the disciples who are always arguing. How come I'm overlooked? How come I'm not seen? How come I don't get all the glory? And this is the disconnect in this story between the disciples and what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, don't you see and understand how much I am for you? How much I love you? How important you are to me? Because I am giving my life for you. You see? I am willing to die for you in order that you would be freed from sin and death and its curse. You know, go back to Wreck-It Ralph with me for a second. Remember the story here? Ralph ends up in a game called Sugar Rush. You see, this is a car racing game. It's kind of like Candyland with car racing because he's been chasing a medal he so desperately wanted. And he meets this character, Vanellope, who is a glitch, and she so desperately wants to become somebody, she takes his medal to buy her way into this game's race. And then we find out there's this other guy, King Candy. He's the ruler of Sugar Rush. He hacks into the code, gets the medal back, gets it to Ralph, telling him Vanellope cannot be in the race or it will destroy their world. Well, we find out King Candy himself is the real villain who is out to destroy Vanellope, who's the rightful ruler of Sugar Rush. You guys following this story, right? If you, if you haven't seen it, you have to see it. <laughs> but at the end of the movie, there's, there's a scene where Ralph has an opportunity to leave the game with his medal, save himself, achieve his dream of being somebody. Then he realizes if he does that, the new friends he made and the world he loves is going to end. So what does he do? He begins to think through all of this and he acts by saying, I am willing to sacrifice my quest to become the greatest. He gives up his dreams in order to save his friend Penelope and the world. And he realizes his superpower as a bad guy can actually be used to save someone and to serve others. And he begins, like, this, this moment like clicks for him where all the other things that were important to him kind of becomes unimportant because this is how real love works. It's always sacrificial. See? You know, and this story of the gospel continues to tell us this truth, that Jesus' love for us, for those who are in bondage, those who are suffering, those who don't know how to move forward because sin has impacted us, we begin to realize something. His love for us is the reason that has motivated him to sacrifice himself, to become the Lamb of God who is going to take away the world, sins of the world. This is why he's washing the feet of his disciples because he's the Son of Man who did not come to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And on the cross, you have Jesus doing on a cosmic level for the sins of the world what you and I are called to be for one another on a daily basis, to serve and to love 
and to care and to say greatness is not achieved by thinking about ourselves and what we can get in our lives or have power and glory in a worldly way, but in the way that it works in Jesus' kingdom. And the Lord's Supper is meant to nourish us in that truth. You know, think about what this meal is. You know, whenever someone prepares an incredible meal and sets it out before you, you're not really going to enjoy it unless you do what? You have to actually taste it. You have to actually eat it. And Jesus invites his disciples and us to this table in order to eat and drink so that we can remember his incredible love and his sacrifice and his willingness to give up his life in order that we would have life in him. And that means, Jesus says, I am one who can be trusted because I am going to go and do this on the cross, even though you guys are totally thinking about something unrelated to what I've been doing. You're thinking about yourself. You're arguing. We saw last week Judas about to betray him. And even in the midst of the failure of all of his disciples and his friends, Jesus is saying this, I am committed to making this happen, not because you've been faithful, but because I am faithful. That's the first thing we need to take away from this meal, that we can trust that Jesus actually loves us at that level. And I know a lot of you are saying, I know that, I get that. Um, I've heard that a lot growing up around the church and everything else, that our salvation doesn't depend on the strength of our faithfulness to him, but it is dependent wholly on the faithfulness of Jesus It's not dependent on our ability to obey or to be perfect or be strong in our faith, but it depends completely on Jesus' faithfulness. I think we know that, but it's hard for us to actually grasp this and believe it and live it. You know why? Because um, disciples heard it, they saw it, they were around Jesus, and it took a long time for it to get into their lives. So the purpose of the Lord's Supper is part of it is to eat and drink so it would actually change us. Because so often we don't believe that. What we really believe is that if I come to church and pray, tithe, maybe serve in grace kids, and, I'm, and if you're really, really committed, I even go to another Bible study outside the church that gives you lots of homework, you know? <laughs> then you go serve the homeless. Then God's going to bless me. Then when things go wrong, you know what you begin to say? You know, maybe I'm just not committed enough. I mean, is God disappointed in me? That's where our hearts and our minds go. And when we fail, we wonder, why would God love me? But the Lord's Supper is telling us something different. That Jesus' commitment to us is far greater than the thing we rest on, and it's not dependent on us. And this is the nourishment we need. This is the meal we need to feast on because that is the thing that begins to change us. You know, when the disciples later on come to the realization and begin to learn all of these things and you go to the book of Acts and you see them actually serving and doing ministry, they look nothing like the people that we read about in Luke 22 and 23. Their lives are changed because they begin to see and understand what Christ has done. And in this season of Lent, I want to invite you to reconnect 
if this has been something that's been far from your heart, if the wonder and the beauty of this hasn't been fresh for you in a long time, pray that God would be able to show you the depth of Jesus's love for you demonstrated to us in his sacrifice. Let this meal nourish you. Let it be the meal that gives you what you need because Jesus invites you to come and experience this. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the faithfulness of Jesus even in light of our inability to be faithful to you. This is a demonstration of his love, and I ask that, Lord, this morning you would fill us with hope because all we can do is give you thanks for all that you've done through your Son, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.